Evening. Take your Bibles and turn to Galatians chapter 2. So we were just there a moment ago. We've been going through the book of Galatians in youth group, and we've been walking through the simple theme that God justifies sinners, not saints. God justifies sinners, those who are in need of righteousness. That's who God justifies. We've been unpacking those themes and exploring some of the underlying currents in the Galatian church to see why the Galatians left the gospel. We're trying to look at what made them flee the gospel and run to something else. And it's been an encouragement to my heart as we walk through that text. One of the texts that's coming up in the next couple weeks that we haven't touched on yet is what we'll be in tonight. Chapter 2, verses 1 through 10. So let me pray for us and then we'll go into the text. Father, we come to you as sinners who are in need of righteousness. And you have given that righteousness to each one of us, not by our merit, but by the merit of Jesus Christ. And as we look to him with faith, and we put our full trust in him, all of who we are invested in who he is, as we depend on him fully for that righteousness, you are faithful to save us. And you've given us your spirit who is actively at work in each one of our hearts, creating faith in us and strengthening the faith that is there. And as we look to him, as we look to Christ, our righteousness, and the hope that we have in him, you are faithful to form Christ in us by your spirit. So Father, let us walk away today not with a greater confidence in our flesh to live the Christian life. May we abhor every effort that we make in our flesh to live for righteousness. Instead, characterize us, mark us by a brokenness and a contrite heart that's completely dependent on your spirit for every step that we take in this life. Would you break us of our self-will and make us into people who are zealous for the gospel, who love our God, not because we loved him first, but because he first loved us, and shape us to be people who would be zealous for the gospel so that the world would see the sovereign grace of God that's been poured out upon us. Strengthen our hearts as we look at the text today. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. So what do we do when we're pressured to concede to the opinions of man? Who's not wrestled with the temptation to please people, right? Here's an example. Someone comes up to you and asks if you could help with a ministry at church or do them some small favor, right? And then in an instant, your responsibilities flash before your eyes and you feel the weight of your smartphone that holds all the tasks that you have to do this week suddenly get a little bit heavier in your pocket. In mere seconds, you calculate the number of unread emails, the places you have to take the children, and the number of hours you've lost, of sleep you've lost in the past week. Wisdom... Wisdom tells you to say no, right? Wisdom says no, I need to steward my responsibilities well. Yet, somehow, as your lips go to form the no, I don't have time for this, out pops yes, sure, right? You force a smile and you walk away wondering why you ever said yes. And the reality is, we all struggle with the temptation to please people instead of God. We have that tendency inside of us that we don't want to look like that selfish believer who never has time to help in the church. And so we always say yes, and we never say no. 
And our problem isn't time management. It's not trying to figure out our priorities and get everything straight and get our lives figured out. The problem is, is we're idolaters and we love ourselves far more than we love God. And the reality is we struggle with the temptation to please people instead of God. And in fact, this is the same struggle that the Galatian church faced. Certain people had entered the congregation and they were proclaiming a false gospel, right? And it wasn't like it was too different. They just twisted a little bit of it. It was just a twisted truth. It's what we've explored in youth group. It's just a little bit different than the real gospel. But it's just twisted enough that it changed the integrity of what this gospel was. And this is what they were saying. You, you could become a child of God, but if you want to be a real child of God, if you want to be a real son of God in the line of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, if you want to, if you want to participate in all the great blessings that are being unfolded to you, you need to obey the law. You need to be circumcised. And so the Galatians, they didn't want to look foolish to these high and mighty teachers. And so they conceded and they fell into heresy. And so in the opening chapters of Galatians, Paul begins to respond to the Galatians. But instead of immediately refuting false doctrine, instead of going at them and talking about, here's where you went wrong, he starts to unpack a different trajectory in their lives. And he starts to show them a moral reason for why they've left the gospel. It's not that they didn't know all the right things. It's that they wanted to please these Judaizers. They wanted to make them happy. Paul doesn't deal with the doctrine until we get to chapter 3. The first two chapters are just about the theme of what Paul does as an apostle. And what Paul does is to please God. Chapter 1 verse 10 says this, For am I now seeking the approval of man or of God? Or am I trying to please man? If I were still trying to please man, I would not be a servant of Christ. This is the key verse Paul takes, and he begins to expound on that for the next chapter or two. And he shares event after event from his life where he's proving his authenticity as an apostle and saying, I don't please man. I please God. That's what he's trying to prove. And so we get to chapter 2, and we're starting to move into a section of the text where Paul changes, and he starts to explain an event that's happening, or an event that happened in the past. And there's debate on what this event was. It could have been the Jerusalem Council in Acts 15. It could have been a, a, a visit in Acts 11 where he went up with other prophets to Jerusalem. There's, there's some debate on where this was and what, when it happened. That doesn't change the interpretation or the point that Paul's trying to make. Well, the point that Paul's trying to make is, I do not please man, I please God. So he has been forgiven by his gracious Savior, and he's been entrusted the gospel by his sovereign God, and so he comes to the logical conclusion, how could I not please God? And so arriving in chapter 2, he shares this encounter that he has with false teachers. He was pressured to circumcise Titus, who he brought with, but even in the face of that pressure, Paul stood firm in the gospel because he had committed in his heart to please God, not man. And so we also must please God. Christ has given us freedom from sin and from death, and he has given us new life through his resurrection. He has given us authority and power, not inherent in ourselves, but in his gospel that he's entrusted to us to steward and deliver well. He's shown us his grace by saving us according to his sovereign pleasure, not according to our efforts or our works. 
He's entrusted the gospel to us to guard and to spread throughout our communities, and therefore we must aim to please him, not man. And so as we come to this text, the one thing that Paul wants us to come away with is that we must please God by guarding his gospel. We must please our God by guarding his gospel, by protecting it, by ensuring it's not contaminated, that it doesn't fall away and turn and get twisted into something else. God calls us to guard his gospel as his people. As people who have been made new by this gospel, we are called to stand firm in it and to not let it be perverted by the intentions of man. So the question for us stands is, how do we guard that gospel? How do we stand firm in the gospel and keep it from getting contaminated? So I believe Paul offers us three different ways we can do that. And the first way we guard the gospel is by opposing self-righteousness. It's by opposing the self-righteousness that's in each one of us. This is seen in verses 1 through 5. Paul here opens up by saying, After 14 years, so from his conversion, after 14 years, I went up again to Jerusalem. And he takes along a couple of people. He brings Barnabas and he brings Titus with them. And he says, I went up because of revelation. I set before them, though privately before them who seemed influential, the gospel that I proclaim among the Gentiles. So Paul takes this trip and he goes up to Jerusalem with a couple of his co-workers. And he goes up there for the purpose of setting out and laying out, here's the gospel that I preach. And then he goes and he says at the end of verse 2, in order to make sure that I was not running or had not run in vain. So Paul understood the gospel has been divinely given to me by my encounter with Christ. I saw him on the way to Damascus. And he gave me the gospel. I've been entrusted with it. But after 14 years, Paul has the humility to go and say, you know, I want to make sure I'm preaching the right gospel. I want to make sure I'm not running in vain. So he goes up. But he's, he makes it painfully obvious. I'm going to those who seemed influential. And he's going to unpack that a little more. Like, I'm going to them because they're influential, but not because I want to pony up to them and say, hey, this is, I, I like you and I want to make you look great and I want to flatter you. He's, he's saying, I'm going to them because I see their apostles. But one of the things that Paul battles in this text is self-righteousness, not on his part, but on the part of the Judaizers who are coming at him. And if we're to oppose the self-righteousness that is in each of us, we need to know what that self-righteousness looks like. And so in, in these verses, I think Paul offers us a couple descriptions of what self-righteousness looks like. So in verses 1 and 2, I, we see that self-righteousness avoids examination from others. So why would Paul go up there if he was completely convinced and prideful that I don't need any other man to keep me on the right track? Paul has the humility. Paul, the apostle of God, has the humility to be examined by other people and see whether he's preaching the correct gospel. And so he goes up to have that examination. But self-righteousness would have none of that. Self-righteousness does not want to be examined by other people. It doesn't want people to press in and see the sin that's inside of us. And instead, it puts up walls and it pushes away people so that they only see facades and they only see moral uprightness on the outside, but they don't let it move into the depths of our hearts. Self-righteousness is hates examination. It does not like that. But self-righteousness also rejects the freedom found in Christ. And that's in verses 3 through 4 here. 
Paul says, but even Titus, who was with me, was not forced to be circumcised, though he was a Greek. Yet because of false brothers secretly brought in, who slipped in to spy out our freedom that we have in Christ Jesus, so that they might bring us into slavery, to them we did not yield in submission even for a moment, so that the truth of the gospel might be preserved for you. And so self-righteousness rejects the freedom found in Christ. These false teachers here in verse 4, it says, they slipped in to spy out our freedom that we have in Christ, so that they might turn right back around and bring the Galatians back into slavery. Self-righteousness hates the freedom found in Christ. Self-righteousness opposes the basis of the work of Christ. It, it pushes away the righteousness that we would have in God, and instead it comes back to a righteousness that is of self. It pushes away any merit that Christ has done for us, and it re fully rejects that. Even an ounce of self-effort throws it back in the face of Christ and says, I don't need your righteousness, I have my own. And self-righteousness rejects that freedom. And when Paul talks about freedom here, he's not necessarily talking about our Christian liberties that we have in Christ. Paul's talking about freedom from a force, from a nature that was inherent in each one of us, our sin. And Paul says, you've been freed from that, yet these Judaizers over here want to drag you back in and bring you back and capture you so that you might live within your, back in your sin, so that you might be ingrained in the gospel, so that you might not be able to obey God. They want to bring them back into that slavery away from Christ and back to self. So self-righteousness not only avoids that examination, but it rejects the basis, the freedom found in Christ. But self-righteousness also protects itself at the cost of other people. And we see this in verse 5. Paul says, To them, the Judaizers, we did not yield in submission even for a moment so that the truth of the gospel might be preserved for you. Paul stood firm in the gospel not just because he knew the Judaizers were wrong, but because he had such a zeal and love for the gospel and for those who would come to know Christ through it that he determined to stand firm now so that the future generations who would come to know Christ would have the freedom preserved for them so that the gospel might literally con remain continually forever that it would eternally persi persist into the future so that the freedoms that are offered to those in Christ would still be true and available. So Paul, Paul gave up his, himself. He let himself be berated by false teachers and even to the point of persecution by these other Judaizers. Later in the book, he's going to say, let no one bother me. I bear the marks of Christ. Like, stop it, you guys. I've been literally pummeled to death in my body. It's like, don't stop, he says. I bear the marks of Christ. I've borne up under these false teachers who have been persecuting me for the sake of preserving the gospel for you. And so self-righteousness does not do that. It does not model the sacrificial humility of Christ condescending to mere man to be crucified on a cross and put to death. Self-righteousness does not model that sacrificial love. Self-righteousness protects itself at the cost of other people. So what does that mean for us? 
How does that apply to us today? And first, we must recognize that self-righteousness that's in ourselves, and we must oppose it, right? Maybe we bristle like a porcupine when our friend points out sin in our lives, right? Don't we have porcupines inside all of us that are always quick to defend and slow to actually hear the rebuke of a brother? Maybe we look down on others who don't listen to the same music as we do. Maybe we can't stand to be wrong. or Maybe we can't stand to lose an argument from someone else. The reality is God justifies sinners, not saints. We added nothing to our salvation. In humility, we are to forsake not only our worst sins, but also our best accomplishments that we've ever had. In faith, we look to his, Christ's perfect righteousness. And with dependence, day by day, we walk by his spirit, who's actively forming Christ in us by faith. But second, not only do we look out for that righteousness, that self-righteousness in us, but we must watch out for self-righteousness in other people and oppose that. So maybe we know of a friend who's avoiding gathering with the church or is maybe just caught up in a sin. Maybe we see someone who's participating in all the disciplines of the Christian life, reading the Bible, attending church, praying, but they're not participating in the joy that comes with the Christian life. Maybe we hear someone cutting down other people with sarcasm and crude jokes. God uses his people to reveal sin in each other and to remind each other of grace. We are tasked with restoring others back to grace. We're not tasked with yielding to their hypocrisy and falling into that self-righteousness. We're called to stand firm in the gospel and call people back. Come in. Come to the gospel. Don't continue in that self-righteousness. Come back to the grace of God. We're commissioned to guard that divine gospel of God. And so often, guarding that gospel doesn't look like merely affirming the truths of Christianity and orthodox doctrine. It looks like day-to-day living and opposing the self-righteousness that lives inside each one of us. And so we must please God rather than men by confronting that self-righteousness. So we already saw that we, don't guard, the, we guard the gospel when we oppose that self-righteousness, but we also guard the gospel by commending grace. And this is in verses 6 through 9. We guard the gospel by commending grace. Verse 6 says this, And from those who seem to be influential, what they were makes no difference to me. God shows no partiality. Those, I say, who seemed influential added nothing to me. So Paul begins to explain and unpack his response and the response of the apostles in Jerusalem. And in this, as we see, we're supposed to commend grace. We see three descriptions of grace in this passage of what grace looks like. What is grace? How does it appear in our lives? What does it look like? And so the first description of grace we see is that grace deals impartially with other people. That's verse 6, right? He says, those who seemed influential, but then he says, what they were doesn't make any difference to me. God shows no partiality. Literally, that phrase reads, God does not receive face, right? God does not receive this. God looks at us, he sees our appearances, and he does not receive it. 
There's nothing there. He doesn't look us. He doesn't work with us. He doesn't deal with us on the basis of appearance, what we look like. God doesn't categorize us based on what we look like or what we do or what financial status we have or what affinity we have with one group of people or what ethnicity we are. God does not deal with us based on those things. God deals with us in grace. And so grace does not exclude others or grace does not go to some group of people based on what they look like or what they do or what they say or what they offer us. Grace goes because grace is undeserved and grace chooses to love not based on anything that that person has done but because they simply want to so grace deals impartially with others but grace also recognizes the work of god in other people and this is verses seven through nine paul says here on the contrary when they the jerusalem apostles when they saw that i've been entrusted with the gospel to the uncircumcised, to the Gentiles, right? Just as Peter had been entrusted to the circumcised, so to the Jews. And then he, in verse 8, he kind of adds this side note. He says, for he who worked through Peter, so God who worked through Peter, for his apostolic ministry to the Jews worked also through me for mine to the Gentiles. And when James and Cephas and John who seemed to be pillars, right? They were upright in the church. They were the foundation, the apostles who preached the gospel. When they, those apostles, perceived the grace that was given to me. So Paul takes some time to unpack this and show that these apostles, these Jerusalem apostles, saw something in Paul. And what they saw was grace at work in his life. They saw the work of God in his life in entrusting the gospel to him and moving him to spread that gospel around to the Gentiles. They noticed that. They saw that. It says they perceived it. They noticed that God was at work in his life, working that grace from Paul, Paul who once opposed the church, who once uttered threats from his mouth, literally breathed out threats wherever he went. That Paul was converted by the Spirit of God in an encounter with Christ and turned to be entrusted with that gospel and display it to the world around him. When the Jerusalem apostles saw that grace, they concluded, this is of God. This is a work of God. This is nothing that man has ever accomplished. And so grace recognizes that work of God in other people. Grace sees the smallest efforts that happen in our lives and it notices that. Self-righteousness is quick to place high standards on people and crush them under unmeasurable efforts. But grace is quick to notice the small changes and to appreciate the small things that are in each of our lives, even though we're so horribly sinful and wicked in the face of a holy God. So grace recognizes the work of God in others because pride would simply just brush it aside and only acknowledge my own. So grace deals impartially and grace recognizes the work of God in others, but grace associates with others. Verse 9, the end here, it says, when, when these apostles perceived the grace that was given to me, they gave the right hand of fellowship to Barnabas and me, that we should go to the Gentiles and they to the circumcised. So Paul recognizes here at the end these apostles who saw this great work of God and they saw what God was doing through Paul to reach the Gentiles, 
Paul recognizes they gave me the right hand of fellowship, right? They welcomed him in. They brought him into the community and said, you are of the gospel. You do preach that, and we recognize you. We associate with you. We commend you in your gospel ministry. It's not that Paul needed to go to the Jerusalem apostles and get his authority for the gospel, right? He's already proved that earlier in chapter 1. He's, has, he's encountered God himself who's delivered him the gospel personally, right? Paul isn't trying to see, do I need authority to preach this gospel or not? But grace, grace recognizes that work and it associates and it brings community together. The people of God as they gather together are brought together by grace, if we were to assemble together by any other method besides grace, would you have picked the very people who are sitting in this room? None of us would have, right? Because we look around. I mean, you guys are great people. No, no, no apologies. I love you guys. But, but, but grace doesn't choose based on inherent. It doesn't choose based on partiality, based on appearances. Grace chooses based on what God has done in his gospel. And so grace associates because it takes humility to bring people together around the gospel, the centerpiece of the cross and boasting in that. So what does that mean? What do these three principles of grace mean in our lives? And I think the first one is that we must look for the grace of God in our lives, and that must move us to praise our God, right? So maybe it's something small in our lives. So we become more aware in our lives of the battle between selfishness and obedience. I see a little bit more clarity there in my life between these two things. Or maybe we, we find ourselves slightly more concerned, ever so little, with the eternal destiny of the people around us. Maybe there's just a growing inclination, slow but steady, towards caring about these souls that are going to hell. Maybe it's just growth in consistency in devotions and reading the Bible almost every day of the week. Maybe it's just a simple quiet confidence of trusting God's promise and just simply knowing that he is God. Grace works in the small ways and in the big ways in our life. And really, God gives grace to the humble. As we look at ourselves with humility, we begin to see his transforming work in the small cracks and the crevices of our lives. And when we persist in self-righteousness, when we stay in our sin, we become blind to the God's work. And we focus our attention on our successes and we get obsessed with our failures, but we miss the fact that God is working in the middle of that with his grace. He's present in both success and failure. And so instead, a humble person is grateful for the smallest change in his life. For they know that only God could have accomplished something that great. And then secondly... Not only do we look for grace of God in our lives, we recognize the grace of God in other people, and then we share it with them. So maybe we see the faithful obedience of a friend or a church member. Or it's maybe we're encouraged by someone's trust in the Lord during a hardship, right? Sometimes the things that strengthen our faith the most aren't things that happen in our life, but watching other people persist faithfully in the middle of suffering. Maybe a friend begins to take steps to spend more deliberate time with the Lord, and just simply read the word and pray. And so God allows us to see his hand of grace in other people's lives for a reason. He does it not only to encourage us, but because he wants us to encourage others. And if you've walked the Christian life for any short amount of time, it's quickly discouraging, right? 
Sometimes grace isn't immediately evident in all of our lives. And so sharing our observations of grace of other people with them builds them up in the gospel. And sometimes that means the world. A simple text, uh, a quick text, a simple thank you, a thoughtful comment, all those things can be used to boost a discouraged soul and remind them of the grace of God that is always at work, regardless of whatever situation we might be in. And so we guard the gospel not only by opposing that self-righteousness, and we not only guard the gospel by commending the grace of God, but we also, finally, guard the gospel by showing compassion. And that's in verse 10. Paul says here, Only they asked us to remember the poor, the very thing I was eager to do. So if you're like me and you read this text, you might wonder, what connection does that have with the rest of this passage? Why is there this random little pericope just thrown in here dealing with poverty? Why does Paul bring that into this event? And we might have to go outside the bounds of this text into the book of Galatians to understand why this makes sense to Paul. But in the context, there are three principles that we could pull through here from, about compassion that show why it's integral to the gospel. So one, compassion rejects the approval of other people. We've seen this already throughout this passage, and it's laced throughout the book. Grace opposes people-pleasing, right? It's against that. And compassion really rejects the approval of other people. Because why would compassion be motivated to associate with the lowly, those who are struck with unusual hardship? Why would grace, why would compassion go to that? Because that's so opposed to our self-righteous mindset. Instead, we want to live above that. We, and we might go do some work of charity, but oftentimes we motivate that self-righteousness to say, yeah, look at that. I, I gave 20 bucks to Samaritan Ministries. Look at that. Like we, we, often, we often mistake charity for true compassion. And compassion rejects the approval of others and associates with the lowly. Because that's what God did in Christ for us, right? We are all damned underneath the wrath of God. And we are all lowly and worthless in his sight. And yet God, with us as worms, stooped down and became one of us and then moved to the epitome of human destruction with death, right? He bore the wrath of God for us, even though we did not deserve it. And he associated with sinful humanity, though we did not deserve that. So compassion like Christ did for us, rejects the approval of others. But compassion also recognizes sin as the primary problem, right? And, and later in verses 15 and 16, and then throughout the whole book of Galatians, Paul's going to unpack the theme of sin, right? Our circumstances aren't the primary problem. When we see someone who's in need and needs help, their need, their physical need, isn't the primary issue. It's that they're a sinner underneath the wrath of a holy God. And so compassion not only sees the physical hurt and suffering, it moves through that to see the sinner that's standing there before God's wrath underneath him, damned to hell. And it moves not because of their, their financial plight or their, their poverty level. It moves through that to see that they're spiritually impoverished before God and that they need his grace to revitalize them, bring them back to life and give them a better purpose to live for than anything that could be found in this world. So compassion rejects that approval. Compassion recognizes sin. And then ultimately, 
compassion operates out of a love for God and others, right? And this we do see in verse 10 here. Paul says at the very end, he says, the very thing I was eager to do that he was zealous for. And later in chapter 5, verse 6, Paul's going to say, you know, any work you do, circumcision, uncircumcision, that counts for nothing, right? He says the only thing that counts is faith in God working through love. And so if we are to move, be moved in compassion for people who truly need it, what's going to motivate us to do that is not guilt. It's going to be love for them, love for God, love for other people that's motivated out of what God has done for us in Christ. And if we look to that as our basis and as our hope, we will have inside of us engendered by the Holy Spirit a compassion that's far greater than simply looking at someone in their affliction. We will see God's grace moving us to love because we once also were unlovable too. So compassion truly operates out of love for God and others. So what's that mean for us? And it simply means that we must posture our hearts with grace in order to show compassion. And I want to note this text does not share how we are to help other people in need. Paul's not interested in talking about how he helps the poor. He's simply only talking about why he helps the poor. And so I think to stay true to the text, I'm not going to talk about ways to, to how we should help. But I want to talk about a, two postures of heart that will shape why we help. And so the first posture that we are to have a mindset, right? This is the mindset we're to have. A, a posture, a mindset of gratitude instead of guilt toward God for our possessions. Now, if you're like me, when you drive down the road, sometimes you encounter someone who's asking for help. And one of the things I have to wrestle with in my heart is whether or not I truly, I have all these items here and suddenly I have all these possessions. I have a comfortable life, right? I'm able to make an income. I'm able to have food provided for me. I'm able to live comfortably, right? And I look at someone who might not have that, and suddenly there's pangs of guilt that go through my mind. I'm like, oh, why do I have this? And you just feel awkward, uncomfortable, and you don't want to be in this situation, and so you just get out of there as quickly as you can because you feel guilty. And the reality is the gospel reminds us that none of us deserve anything, that everything we have is a gift of grace from God, that nothing that not any, anything, whether it's an iPhone or food or a computer or carpet, right? None of those things are things that we earned ourselves. They're only gifts from a God who chose to bestow them to us, just like forgiveness. And when we start to see that in our lives, we have gratitude created in our hearts for those things. And we recognize that we can simply part with these things as God sees fit, because they were given to people who don't deserve it. And so this posture of gratitude will help us be moved to help others. But a posture of gratitude is not only needed, but a posture of compassion instead of condemnation towards others in plight. The other thing that our hearts are quick and quickly hop to is looking at someone and immediately knowing why they're in the trouble they are without having any conversation with them, why, the trouble, why they're in the trouble that they're in. And we're really good at assuming. And we're really bad at actually seeking and understanding why they are there. And I'm guilty of that just as much as any of us. And the thing that will move us to that is not 
penalizing ourselves and running through, oh yeah, you're just terrible, Joe, you're horrible. No, that's not going to do it. It's, and we're not going to stop thinking condemning thoughts towards people in the situation they are simply based on just beating ourselves up. What we're going to do, what's going to change our heart towards that is recognizing that I didn't earn a single thing. Because condemnation, a judgment, comes from a heart that has elevated itself above someone else. And we will quickly offer condemnation to someone but because we're prideful and because we've elevated ourselves and puffed our heads up bigger than they are. Because we think that somehow my hard work of 40 to 60 hours a week has earned me this F-150 that I'm driving right now. I don't own an F-150. I, I, I don't like trucks. Um, but that, that posture of compassion instead of condemnation towards others and plight comes when we recognize, I didn't earn that. God gave it to me. He gave it to me. And I must give it back for him. So these two postures of heart will help us interact and deal with the sin that's inside of us so that we might better help the people outside of us. And so in light of our responsibility that Paul, Paul clearly outlays, right, to please God, we must guard the gospel. God has not left us without direction to guard his message. As we've seen, we must reject self-righteousness. We must recognize grace and build other people up. We must cultivate compassion in our hearts for those in need and the grace of God in the gospel calls us to a greater purpose than we ever could have in pleasing people. It calls us to pleasing our Lord and Savior. We are tasked with pleasing the God of the universe, but not to earn his love. Even better, we please him because he first loved us. And so the question for you and I stands as this. Will you and I forsake the opinions of man so that we would serve our gracious God? Let's pray. Father, you've been so kind to us.